Welcome to the 1505 Club. If you remember our first conversation with Dr. Christopher Meyer, he mentioned the role that the spleen plays in immunity. This is something that I had never heard of before. When I hear about the spleen, I think of the character from the movie Mystery Men, and I realize that I learned very little about the spleen when I was in school. Well, Dr. Meyer sent me the research post that he was referencing, and I was going to discuss it with him, but I realized that it wasn't the kind of topic that we could go back and forth on. Instead, I'm going to explain to you what the research says about the spleen and about our immune systems, and I think it'll be the perfect primer for our next conversation with Dr. Meyer. This research article that he sent me is probably the longest one I've ever seen, but after pouring through it line by line, there is a ton of relevant information. There's, also, there's almost too much information, so I'm going to try to do the research justice, but also try to make it as understandable as I possibly can. Hopefully I can pull it off. When I was in school, the only thing I learned about the spleen is that it holds blood. And when you get a pain in your side from running, it's your spleen that causes that pain. I don't really remember learning much else. It turns out that the spleen is the primary modulator of both the immune system and systemic inflammation. So let's start there. The spleen serves a pro-inflammatory function, which is mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. Remember, the sympathetic is your fight or flight, or you could just remember it as your body's on system. So when the nervous system turns the spleen on, the result is a more inflammatory state. Now I realize that most people have been conditioned to think of pro-inflammatory as bad, but we need to destroy that myth right now. Inflammation is absolutely essential for healing. If you could not create inflammation, you would not be able to heal. The problem only occurs when you're stuck in an, in an inflammatory state, but that does not mean that inflammation is bad. So let's talk about the principle. A principle is a guiding fact that keeps us from being misled by ideas that sound true but are actually false. In this case, the false idea is that if a little bit is good, then a lot is better or more healthy. The principle is that health does not exist at the extremes, which you will soon see, but it exists at the balancing point between the two extremes. More importantly, the body needs mobility, so at certain times it might move closer to one extreme, but this is only temporary and at other times it might move toward the other extreme. But again, this is only temporary. Health is balance, not extreme activity. So let's get back to the spleen. One unique thing about the spleen is that it does not use acetylcholine. If you're unfamiliar with neurotransmitters, the only thing you need to know is that the nervous system is both electrical and chemical. Acetylcholine is the most common chemical used by the nervous system. But the spleen does not use it. Instead, the spleen relies primarily on nicotinamide receptors. As you might have guessed, nicotinamide receptors have an affinity for nicotine. The only problem is that once the nicotine is attached to the nicotinamide receptor, the body has no method for breaking down the nicotine, so it remains permanently attached and creates a constant stimulus. Now here's where this becomes really relevant. If you smoke, the nicotine will bind to the nicotinamide receptors in the spleen and will create a permanent disability when it comes to creating systemic inflammation. Since inflammation is essential for wound healing, this explains why smokers have impaired wound healing. So this demonstrates one extreme, the dysfunction of being stuck in an anti-inflammatory state. As we mentioned, the spleen is naturally pro-inflammatory, 
but in order to create health, we need a mechanism to apply the break and create an anti-inflammatory state without making that state permanent like it would be with smoking. In this case, the break is applied by the parasympathetic nervous system, your feed, peed, and breed system, or quite simply your body's off system, which is supplied by our old friend, the vagus nerve. Now here's where things get really tricky. The vagus nerve does not directly innervate the spleen. So the purpose for doing this research in the first place was to determine how the vagus nerve is able to assert its influence on the spleen without having any direct nerve supply to the spleen. The vagus nerve's ability to modulate inflammatory state through the spleen is accomplished through the use of T-cells. T-cells are a very important part of your adaptive immune system, and they're highly focused killers who look for a particular target when they're called to the scene. As of yet, we do not know where these T-cells are coming from, but it's obviously some organ that's innervated by the vagus nerve. And hopefully this will be the next great discovery on this topic. These T-cells, from unknown origin, bring with them acetylcholine. But remember, the spleen does not have receptors for acetylcholine. Instead, the acetylcholine binds to receptor sites on the sympathetic nerve itself. When the acetylcholine binds to the sympathetic receptor sites, it down-regulates the sympathetic nerve. In other words, the vagus does not hit the brakes by turning down the spleen, but it hits the brakes by turning down the sympathetic nerve that turns down the spleen. The action of the vagus on the spleen is indirect at two different places. It's indirect because it uses T-cells with acetylcholine and not direct innervation, but it's also indirect because it turns down the sympathetic nerve and not the spleen itself. Now, you might be wondering why any of this is relevant, so let me give you a scenario that could cause the opposite extreme from the one we described with smoking. Vaccine-induced immunity causes something called B-cell proliferation. This is something that's firmly established in the research, so it's not even a debatable or a controversial topic. The reality is the vaccines cause a dramatic increase in the number of circulating B-cells while simultaneously leading to a decrease in the number of T-cells. Let me briefly tell you how I stumbled upon knowing this. I was doing some research on pediatric sleep apnea, which I already knew was caused by enlarged tonsils and adenoids. I wanted to know if there was any research that could explain why they were enlarged. It turns out that the research leads us to two reasons why kids have enlarged tonsils. The first reason is because they are mouth breathers. I don't mean that as any kind of a derogatory slur, but I literally mean that when they are both awake and asleep, they're breathing through their mouth and not their nose. The nose is built to purify the air, but the mouth is not. The nose creates proper humidity, but the mouth does not. In short, nose breathing is normal and mouth breathing is not. Unfortunately, mouth breathing is plenty common. There are appliances that can be worn to correct this problem, but that's a topic for another day. The other reason the tonsils become swollen, according to the research, is because of B-cell proliferation as a result of vaccination. Now, some people might think that this is a double-edged sword because while the tonsils are swollen, you're loaded with all of these additional B-cells, so that should boost your immunity, right? Well, fortunately, someone thought to test that. They took B-cells from the swollen tonsils and compared them to B-cells found elsewhere in the body, and they did this on multiple subjects. Without exception, they found that when the B-cells were challenged to create activity, the B-cells from elsewhere in the body did their job as they were supposed to, but the B-cells from the tonsils were immuno-incompetent. That's actually a nice way of saying it. The researchers judged the B-cells to be absolutely useless. Now, the mystery is that nobody knows how or why this happens, but we cannot deny the fact that it does happen. 
Now, let's make this relevant to our conversation about the spleen. If vaccine-induced immunity leads to a proliferation of B cells with an associated decrease in T cells, then the decrease in T cells would inhibit the ability of the vagus nerve to downregulate the sympathetic nervous system associated with the spleen. This, in turn, would lead to heightened sympathetic stimulation of the spleen, which would lead to a chronic hyperinflammatory state, the very conditions necessary for autoimmune disease. So now, in this example, we have the opposite extreme of hyperinflammatory and autoimmune as opposed to the smoker who's hypoinflammatory and is unable to heal properly. Before we go any further, let me take a moment to confess that I buried the lead on this one, but I did so intentionally. Now that we've covered all of this, let me tell you what this article was really about. The article is entitled, Sympathetic Nerve Hyperactivity in the Spleen, Causal for Non-Pathogenic-Driven Chronic Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases. If you can read through all of that Latin, what you would understand they are saying is that there are a class of diseases which are not caused by any kind of invading germ, if you will, but they're caused by dysfunction of the immune system, and this dysfunction is created by overactivity of the spleen. What's even better is they give a list of the diseases that fall under this category. So get a load of this. Type 1 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, high blood pressure, chronic pulmonary or lung disease, coronary heart disease, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, sympathetic, uh, sorry, systematic, I'm sorry, systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, or just lupus for short. It probably should be SLE for me since I can't say systemic. Uh, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and multiple sclerosis. What they're saying essentially is that these are not diseases you get, but they are diseases we create. We, cre we create them when we intervene in such a way that we impair the delicate balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. In this article, they refer to this as dysautonomia. If we decipher that Latin, it means the state of dysfunctional self-regulation. You could even go so far as to say it's a lack or loss of homeostasis. When we look at the population today, we must conclude that people are really, really sick. But it generally isn't because of outside-in disease. It's because of inside-out dysfunction. That is a key distinction, and it ultimately makes a huge difference in how we approach solving it. I feel like I need to take a small detour here thanks to the coronavirus. When you think about communicable diseases such as coronavirus or even the flu or measles or polio, you name it, it's tempting to think that these diseases are pure invaders and the strength of our immune system is irrelevant. Fortunately, that's simply not the case. The coronavirus only kills about 2% of the people who get it, and while that's still incredibly sad, there has to be an explanation for why 98% do not die. During the polio epidemic, less than 10% of cases had any degree of paralysis, and less than 1% of paralysis was permanent. What's so special about the other 90%? Were they just lucky? Even during the 1918 flu pandemic that killed roughly one-quarter to one-third of the world's population, that still means that 66% either never got sick or they got sick and recovered. What's so special about them? Well, it's this very thing that we're talking about, the internal function of the body that determines not only whether or not you get sick, but the degree to which you get sick and the speed and efficiency with which you recover. So let's jump back to the conversation on the spleen because there's still one more mechanism that can create an imbalance and lead to any of the diseases we just discussed. 
This system has to do with epinephrine, the so-called stress hormone. Now this part gets a little tricky, so I'm going to go really slow and try to explain it well. Epinephrine causes a negative feedback on the sympathetic nervous system. So this is like the physiological version of a double negative. In other words, the sympathetic nervous system drives the spleen and causes a pro-inflammatory state. But epinephrine inhibits this, so it hits the brakes and causes an anti-inflammatory state. The biggest reason why this is tricky is because we tend to think of epinephrine as being excitatory, just like the sympathetic nervous system, and generally speaking, that would be true. However, if both the sympathetic nervous system and the epinephrine led to a pro-inflammatory state, this would not only be deadly, but it would be counterproductive to the very reason why these systems kicked into action in the first place. So that is actually why we say it has a negative feedback effect rather than to say that it is inhibitory. The presence of the epinephrine does not force the sympathetic nervous system to downregulate, but when the epinephrine is present, the sympathetic nervous system senses its presence and downregulates itself in response to the presence of epinephrine. I know that probably sounds like semantics, but let me now tell you why that's relevant. Because epinephrine travels through the blood and not through the nervous system, it appears that there are other changes and adaptations that can keep the epinephrine from even reaching the spleen. In this scenario, while our fight or flight system has been activated, the epinephrine never reaches the spleen. So the sympathetic nervous system in the spleen never senses its presence, so it never downregulates itself, so we remain caught in a state of perpetual hyperinflammation. This scenario seems to play out in several of the diseases that I listed earlier. Again, these are not inside I'm sorry, these are inside out functional diseases, not infections. One additional finding associated with dysautonomia is that it can lead to dysfunction of the lymphoid draining system, which, ha which would have the effect of dramatically increasing the risk of cancer. The authors found evidence, through some very complicated biochemical pathways, that the sustained dysregulation, the body will begin to use alternate biomechanic biochemical pathways, and this can result in permanent impairment in lymphocyte and cytokine production. Now, we haven't covered these at all, but they are important parts of your innate immune system that serve as the first line of defense against infection. So this means that dysautonomia could lead to one of the diseases we listed earlier. It could also increase your risk of cancer due to poor lymph or waste removal. And it could also reduce your immunity, leading to a greater risk of actual infection. An associative finding is that sympathetic nervous system activity suppressed cell-mediated immunity. Cell-mediated immunity is the key to creating long-term health. Humoral immunity is good and absolutely essential, but as we discussed earlier, health is achieved with balance, and in this case, it is a balance between cell-mediated and humoral immunity. As a side note, one of the criticisms of vaccines is that they create only humoral immunity. More to the point, they tend to create too much humoral immunity while simultaneously inhibiting cell-mediated immunity. It's difficult to define that scenario as a state of health once we know that health is found in balance, not in extremes. So, let me tell you a story that I think will tie together everything we talked about last week as well as this week and give you a model for how all of this can be relevant on an individual and daily basis. Now, this just happened to me last weekend, so it's still fresh in my head. I had to go down to San Diego to take a class, so I spent the night in a hotel. 
and the hotel had down pillows, but I didn't really think about that ahead of time. I woke up during the night, and my head was in a horrible position that I'm not even sure how it got there, because I am highly unflexible. I moved my head to a better position, and I went back to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, my chest was congested, my throat hurt, I had a headache and a pain at the top of my neck, and my whole body ate like I worked out too hard. I knew I was getting sick, and I knew it was probably a virus. So I took a hot shower, and I tried to heat myself up as much as I could. I went to my class, but I already knew I was in trouble. So I sent a text to a friend to see if I could stop by his office on my way home and get adjusted. I got done with my class a little afternoon, and I drove a couple hours to his office. But I knew I was getting worse the whole time. When he checked my spine, he found a problem with C3. I have never had a C3 problem or had my C3 adjusted ever before in my entire life. But today, there was no doubt that that's exactly where it was. So he adjusted my C3 and my S2, both of which are parasympathetic, by the way. So that means sympathetic dominance and downregulation of the immune system and hyperinflammatory state, everything you need to create fertile soil for disease. As soon as he adjusted my neck, my sore throat went away, and everything else felt noticeably better as well. So I started driving home, and I had another two hours of driving to go. A half hour later, I noticed that I'm getting chilled, and it's become obvious that a fever has set in. It's worth noting that I did not create a fever as long as I was dysfunctional, but it was a half hour after correcting the problem that my body brought in the fever as a normal function to drive out the disease, or the virus, most likely in this case. Anyway, I cranked the heater, and I drove the rest of the way home. When I got home, I took another hot shower, probably too hot, and I went to bed, where I slept for the next 10 to 11 hours. When I woke up, I felt fine, and all of my symptoms were gone, except for the muscle soreness as a result of the fever. In this example, you can see everything that we've been talking about as impairment of the parasympathetic created an imbalance and set the stage for disease. The, the immune system was down-regulated from autonomic imbalance. My spleen initiated a pro or even hyper-inflammatory state. The balance was lost, and I knew that my best efforts were lost until I got my neck corrected so that my nervous system would be balanced. Correction of the nervous system must always precede all other corrections. So the concept of chiropractors as backcrackers is totally lost when you begin to see health from a neurological point of view. I didn't need an adjustment because my back hurt. I needed it because my nervous system was out of balance. This is the higher view of chiropractic that we're trying to create. This is why we do this podcast, and it's the reason why the Gosta Clinical Studies Society exists in the first place. The next time we talk to Dr. Meyer, this knowledge and information should, should serve you well, as it will provide a context to understand what we're talking about. We're mostly talking about polyvagal theory, which is the modern understanding of the dual nature of the vagus nerve. Understanding how it functions is far more relevant when you can understand what it does, how it does it, and the implications of it not doing its job well or at all. If you look down in the show notes, I'm going to attach a short video that lays out a beautiful description of how the immune system works. It's sad to say that if you watch this video, you will instantly know more about the immune system than most doctors. The vast majority of what I know about the immune system, I learned after school. And when doctors don't continue to learn, they tend to get stuck in old paradigms and oversimplifications. We need to do everything we can to keep that from happening. Well, that does it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Denny O'Hara. He and I have put together some great stuff for you. We'll be talking about the importance of the disc as well as the neurological basis for the readings we get on the scope. It's going to be a great conversation, and I hope you come back and join us. Until then, see you next time.